Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Let my people go. Encountering Christ in Exodus. Part 2, Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may worship me. The Exodus is the dominant picture of what salvation looks like in the Old Testament. And the Exodus completely informs the idea, the understanding of salvation in the New Testament. You need to understand that God has no plan B. If you, if you read your Bible and you're like, the Old Testament, God's trying this, and finally says, that, that, that doesn't work. Let's scrap that and come up with a new plan. No, 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 no. God doesn't have plan B because God doesn't fail. God's not a failure. And so there is no plan B. Uh, the saving work we see in Exodus anticipates the work that we find in the New Testament in Christ. So salvation begins in the Old Testament and then finds its completion in Christ in the New Testament, but it's all the same project. It's all plan A. Theologian Robert Jensen says it like this, and I, and I just love this quote. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. That's worth, that's worth writing down. That's your, that's your tweetable quote for today. Robert Jensen, he just went to be with the Lord about a year ago, said, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. So if we want to understand what the Bible means by salvation, we must understand the Exodus. That's what I want to talk about. I mean, the whole book's called Exodus. We're four Sundays in Exodus. From now until Advent, we're in Exodus. But in Exodus today, I want to talk about the Exodus. So that's... That's what we're going to do. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. The Israelites groaned under their burden of slavery. And their cry for rescue from slavery rose up to God. God heard their groaning. All right. The Israelites, these are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has his name changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. They're the 12 founders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they came to Egypt as free people during the famine. We saw this two weeks ago. Remember, Joseph had been sold into slavery, ended up in Egypt. But God was with him, and eventually he becomes the viceroy of Egypt. And in a time of famine... The nation of Israel, the clan of Israel, the people of Israel, this group of 75 people migrate from Canaan to Egypt where they are welcomed, where they are received because Joseph is second only to Pharaoh in the land. And they settle in the land of Goshen and it's good. But 
there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And as a long time went by, the Israelites, multiplying and growing in number in Egypt, became an enslaved people. They were put to forced labor by Pharaoh and the Egyptian elite because Egypt depended on slave labor for its prosperity. At this time, Egypt is the greatest nation in the world. They're the richest, most powerful. They have the biggest, you know, GNP. They have the biggest armies and all of that. But at the base of that, there is a certain dependency upon slave labor. And the way of empire is to exploit an ethnic minority. You don't want to just start, you know, willy-nilly oppressing and enslaving your own people. So the way of empire is to say, oh, that ethnic minority, you know, after all, they're not really us. We're us, they're them. We're this way, they're that way. We look like this, they look like that. And so they land upon this non-Egyptian community of people, an ethnic minority living in the empire of Egypt, and they said, because that, that's the way you dehumanize. It's easier if they're an identifiable, look different them. You can say, well, you know, they're not us. They're probably not even fully human. It's probably, probably God's will. that they, They'll probably like it. It'll probably be good for them. And that's the lies that empires tell. And that fell upon the Israelites. And they became an enslaved people. And they groaned under their bitter burden. It says their lives were made bitter. You know, it was bitter. It wasn't sweet. Life wasn't sweet for them. It was bitter. It was hard. They were being used. They were exploited. They weren't just marginalized. They were being exploited. And their life is made miserable. It's made bitter. It's made sorrowful. And they groan. And they cry out for rescue. We're not told who they cry out to. I don't, it doesn't say they cried out to Yahweh. They really don't know Yahweh at this point. They have a history that Abraham did, and Isaac did, and Jacob did. Joseph maybe a little bit. But that knowledge is kind of lost, and it's going to have to be recovered. They're probably just crying out to Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh is Pharaoh. He's the king of Egypt. Their lives are miserable. They are an exploited underclass. Their lives are bitter. And they're crying out to Pharaoh. Take pity on us. Give us justice. Rescue us. And Pharaoh doesn't hear. Because, you know, a permanent underclass is easily overlooked. He just, uh, I don't hear anything. Do you hear anything? I think everything's fine. I think everything's fine. I think everything's fine. And Pharaoh doesn't hear but someone else did. And the one who heard was Yahweh, the living God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said, I have seen the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of the slave drivers. Indeed, I know their suffering. So I have come to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. All right, we're, look, we're looking at the most dominant picture of salvation in the Old Testament that fully informs salvation in the New Testament. And so we have this people, the Israelites, the seed of Abraham, the Hebrews, suffering in slavery 
And they're groaning and they're crying out. They're crying out to Pharaoh because he's the one that can deliver, but he doesn't. He doesn't hear. He pretends he doesn't hear. He doesn't help, but there is one who does hear. And this one says, I have seen and I have heard and I know and I have come. The living God, not the false gods, the true God, the living God, the I am who I am God is the God who sees, the God who knows, the God who hears, the God who cares about human suffering. Oh, the pagan gods, you know, they're mercurial, they're disinterested, they're far removed. They show up maybe now and then, probably not. But the living God says, I see it all and I hear I know, and I care, so I'm about to come. I'm going to show up. This is the picture of salvation in Exodus, and it shapes the concept of salvation for the whole Bible. So we could say it this way, salvation is the God-sent deliverance or liberation or rescue from the bondage of all that enslaves us. So, so what is salvation? Salvation is the God sent. We don't save ourselves. Salvation is the God sent, whatever words you want to use. God sent rescue. God sent liberation. God sent deliverance from all of the things that seek to enslave us. So, God appeared to Moses... We saw this last Sunday. God appears to Moses in the burning bush and tells him, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh because I got a message for Pharaoh. Now remember, Moses, though a Hebrew, had also been a Pharaonic prince. He'd grown up in the courts of Pharaoh. But when he came of age, he went out to see the plight of his people, was appalled by what he saw, rose up and in violence and slew one of those Egyptian slave drivers. Knew, whoop, that's probably not a good thing to do. Tried to hide the body, but the body was uncovered and the gig was up for Moses and he had to flee into the wilderness and now he's been in the wilderness for 40 years. And he, he kind of thinks that, you know, his life in Egypt is over. I mean, there's not an inkling of a thought in his mind that he's ever going to go back to Egypt. He's just living in the Sinai wilderness, tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. But one day, he finds a bush on fire with the glory of God. Anybody see any burning bushes this week? I told you to keep your eye. I saw several. Anybody see any burning bushes? Come on. Keep your eye out. Slow down. Spend some time in prayer. You'll find the presence of God in unlikely places. And so Moses encounters God and God is saying, Moses, you think your life's over. Heck, you haven't even started yet. You're just now stripped. We've just now been able to strip enough away in the wilderness that I can really use you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to Egypt. To be honest, Moses was not keen about that. God had to kind of talk him into it. So I'm going to be with you. You're not going alone. I'll be with you. But I want you to go back. And I want you to find Pharaoh. You know Pharaoh. You know your way around the court. Show up there 
find Pharaoh and give him a message for me. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may worship me. So the plan now is that Israel will no longer serve Pharaoh. Now they will serve and worship Yahweh. Essentially, Yahweh is saying to Pharaoh, they've been your slaves. Up, Time's up. They're going to be my slaves now. They've been working for you. They're going to work for me. Because I say so. <laughs> Pharaoh doesn't like being told what to do. You know, when you serve and worship the false gods of Pharaoh, eventually it all ends up the same way. You end up a miserable slave. But when you serve and worship the living God, that's when you begin to find your true freedom. I mean, somebody said, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be Pharaoh, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. But if you don't serve the living, when we serve God... When we really serve God, when we, also, when, when, when we become enslaved to God, it liberates us. And we can't even think of ourselves. I'm not a slave. I mean, I am, but I'm, not, I'm a slave to God and freer than I've ever been. But we say, no, I don't, I don't want to serve God. I'll be my own God. Then we make up our own gods. I don't want to serve God. I want to be my own man. But then we create our own idols and we bow down and serve them. And it always plays out the same. We become a slave to them. Idolatry always leads to slavery. True worship, the worship of the true and living God, always leads to liberation and freedom. So the word of the Lord to the principalities and powers is always, let my people go that they may serve me or worship me. The word so it gets translated both ways. It can mean both. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may worship me. But the principalities and powers are loath to lose their privilege and prosperity that comes from the exploitation of an underclass. They're just not keen on that. Let my people go. I don't think so. So we're set up for a confrontation. Moses indeed goes, goes back to Egypt. He meets Pharaoh in his courts. And he says, I got a message for you from Yahweh, the Lord. The message is, let my people go that they may serve me. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? He says, this is my, this is my labor force. That we just give them enough to keep them alive. But, you know, we can have our prosperity because of them. So... You're telling me, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they might serve me. And I'm saying, who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? Well, Pharaoh was about to find out who the Lord is. What happened next was that Egypt was struck by a series of plagues that was a humiliation to the Egyptian pantheon of gods and goddesses in whom Pharaoh and the elite put their trust. You know, we know enough from Egyptology. We, we know that they were a society with a complex 
pantheon of gods and goddesses and a whole priestly apparatus. And there were constant prayers and sacrifices and temples and all of that to the gods, the patron gods that served the well-being of Egypt. Um, but as it turned out, as the plagues began to befall Egypt, that the patron gods, and they all had their you know, division of labor, they had their tasks, the patron gods who oversaw the Nile, that was a big one, uh, weather, agriculture, livestock, health, uh, they were humiliated by the judgments of Yahweh because it turns out the idols of Egypt are not mighty to save. Yeah, that's a good place to amen right there. The idols of Egypt are not mighty to save. And so the plagues began to pile up and the Nile turned to blood. And then there were plagues of lice and flies and locusts and frogs. There were weather catastrophes. There were pandemics that struck both livestock and human beings. And Egypt was brought to the brink of economic ruin. You know, empires can defy the decree that we act with benevolence and neighborliness for a time, but eventually they suffer the consequences of their commitment to injustice. The God who is, the living God, the God who is the creator God, the God of whom the Bible testifies and whom we worship, the God that we sing Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That God is the God who is love. God never acts contrary to love. God is love. And everything, everything God does is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world because God loves the world. Why did God say, let there be light? Because God loves. And so all that which is emanates from the God who is, and this God is love. And so that creates a grain in the universe of love. The grain of love that flows through the universe because the universe proceeds from a God who is love. Now, if we go in the way of love, if we cooperate in the way of love, if we, if we go with the way of love, we flow with the grain of the universe. That is if we arrange our life in such a way where we say, you know what, I'm going to love God above all things. I'm going to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and spirit. And you know what, I'm also going out of that, then I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. If we do that, if we arrange our life according to that flow of love, then we go along with the grain of the universe, which is love, and it tends towards well-being. It doesn't mean that Nothing bad will ever happen, but we just, it means it tends toward human flourishing and well-being. On the other hand, if we say, Ooh, I don't know, I don't know if I want to love God, I want to love me. <laughs> and I don't know if I want to love my neighbor, I might want to use my neighbor, because I have my selfish and greedy needs, and I'm not interested in, you know, equality, I'm not interested in neighborliness. What I'm interested in is my own self-interest. And if my neighbor can be exploited to my supposed benefit, that's how I want to live. Well, that's when um, you're going against the grain of the universe. 
so you can just imagine, you know, like grain and wood that's not been polished or anything. And you say, ah, we start going. You begin to experience the splinters and the shards of self-inflicted suffering. This is the predicament that Egypt and Pharaoh have found themselves in. Eventually, exploiting others eventually leads to various kinds of catastrophes. But Pharaoh still hardened his heart and would not let Israel go, so there would be one more plague. There's been nine. Now there's going to be one more. Exodus 4.22. Thus says the Lord to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may worship me or serve me. Israel. Chosen people, you know. Seed of Abraham. I mean, in our finding Jesus in Genesis, we find that God chooses Abraham sovereignly, just chooses Abraham, that he might bless all of the nations. But God begins with a particular people. And Israel... Yahweh says, is my firstborn son. Now, in the completion of salvation in Christ, we discover that the whole earth is the holy land and the chosen people is the human race. But the project begins with the chosen people. And Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. So, you know, you're just going to have to let them go because they're going to serve me. They're, they're not yours. They're mine. And Israel is my firstborn son. This is, this is whom I'm bringing this revelation of salvation into the world through. Israel's my firstborn son, so you got to let them go. So they can worship me, so they can know me, so they can serve me. They're not going to serve you anymore. They're going to serve me. And Pharaoh said, no, I will not let them go. And because Pharaoh wouldn't let Yahweh's firstborn son go, the final plague was the death of the firstborn in Egypt. So it turned out that Sobek and Serket and Meshkinet, the Egyptian gods and goddesses of divine protection, were powerless to save. Through Moses, Pharaoh was warned, Israel's my firstborn, let him go. If not, it's going to be reciprocal going to have kind of a boomerang effect. There's going to be a consequence. But Pharaoh didn't worry about it because Pharaoh and the elite, they, play, they prayed to Sobek and Serket and Meshkinet, the Egyptian gods and goddesses of divine protection, but it turns out that they were not able to save. They were powerless to save. And the firstborn of Egypt perished. But the firstborn of Israel was saved. How? How would, how would the firstborn of Israel say, how? By the blood of the lamb. Moses, through Yahweh, gave a command to the Israelites and said, well, here's what you're going to do. Each household is going to get a lamb, a male of the first year. And you're going to keep this lamb from the first of the month of Nisan until the 14th. You're going to keep for two weeks, you're going to keep this spotless male lamb of the first year in your household. And then at twilight, on the 14th day of Nisan, you shall slaughter the lamb and you will take the blood and place it upon the doorposts and the lintel. Upon the doorpost and the lintel. You'll take the blood of the lamb and 
place it on the doorpost and the lintel. And then you'll roast the lamb. By the way, the lamb is not being punished. The lamb is simply providing the blood for salvation and the meal for the covenant. The lamb is not being punished. The lamb is the gift of salvation and the gift that arrives in the form of the covenant meal. And they said, okay, so you're going to roast this lamb. You're going to have a big feast of lamb. We'll call it the Passover because death is going to pass over you and not touch you. And you're going to eat this lamb. But here's how you're going to do it. You're going you're gonna to have your traveling clothes on. You're not going to just be you know, comfortable at home with your slippers. No, you're going you're to put on your, your traveling clothes. You're going to put on your sandals. In fact, I want, you to, I want you to eat it with your staff in your hand. Somebody said, that could be tricky. Okay, but just you know, figure it out. I want your staff in your hand. And you know what? We're not even going to wait for the bread to rise. Unleavened bread. We're not putting yeast in. We don't have time to sit around and wait for the bread to rise. Because Israel is about to get out of Egypt. This house of bondage, this is their last night. In fact, they're not even going to make it through the night. They're going to leave that night. And so you eat it with your sandals on and your traveling clothes on and your staff in your hand. You don't even wait for the bread to rise. No leaven because you're getting out of town. And that night, the Israelites left the house of bondage. They left Egypt. Of course, soon they came to the Red Sea. And now Pharaoh is particularly enraged and Pharaoh pursues with his army. And so there's the Israelites, just newly having left Egypt, the exodus, exodus, movement of job people, <laughs> of that. exodus, movement of Yah people, Yahweh's people. But they come to the Red Sea and they can't go forward. And now they look back and here comes Pharaoh and the biggest army in the world, the most powerful army in the world. They're in a tight spot. And the people began to cry out to Moses, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Moses says, ah, hold on with you. I'll get back with you. God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? The people are crying out to Moses. And Moses says, all right, hold on. And, and then, <laughs> then Moses it says, cries out to the Lord. And the Lord answered and said, Moses, why do you cry out to me? You know, we're told that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. I think so. Because I'm telling you, if I was in that situation, I'm in that situation because God has got me in that situation where there's a Red Sea in front of me and the greatest army behind us intent on slaughtering us and I'm crying out to God and God says, why are you crying out to me? I would say, I would think it's pretty obvious why I'm crying out to you. But here's what I've learned. I've learned that, that God sees and God hears and God cares. But don't expect God to be impressed by the magnitude of your problem. Because God just doesn't see it the same way. He says, well, what's, what's the problem? Go forward. Tell Israel to go forward. But there's the Red Sea. It doesn't matter. Tell them to go forward. Oh, yeah, you got that staff you've been carrying around Moses. Why don't you just stretch it out and part the Red Sea? As if it's the most common thing, you know, that anybody would ever do. I guess it's a plan. And he parts the sea. Because God makes a way where there is no way. 
And Israel crosses through as on dry land, and the Egyptians assaying to do so. I feel like King James. The Egyptians assaying to do so were drowned, and they arrived safely on the far shore, having left the land of bondage. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song. I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Anybody remember back in the day when we used to sing that? I will sing unto the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. What does salvation look like? It looks like that. It looks like that which is kept your life bitter and in bondage. You are led out, you're led through a sea, and your captors can no longer pursue and you're free. That's what salvation looks like. So where do we encounter Christ in the Exodus story? <laughs> Everywhere. Everywhere you look. Oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's Jesus. Oh, yeah, I said that. that's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the arrival into history of the God who sees and the God who hears and the God who knows and the God who cares. And this is the God that comes. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And Jesus is the salvation sent by the Father to rescue us from our slavery, our slavery to sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is our liberator. The Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church in Corinth says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This is the Eucharistic feast. Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he's writing to these new Christians. He says, you know, you know, uh, in our Jewish history, and most of these are Gentiles, if not all. Most, if not all, of the Corinthians are Gentiles. But he says, you know, in our Jewish history, we had this liberation. We had this meal, and then, and then God liberated us. And we've kept that meal. We've, we commemorate that every year. We call it Passover. He said, well, you're not Jews. You're Gentiles. But I'll tell you what, you've got a Passover lamb, and it's Christ. And your Passover lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed for you, for us, for all of us. So let's keep the feast. And he's talking about communion, the Eucharist. Let's keep the feast. And just, and just like, the, just like the, the Jewish Passover is unleavened, let's keep this unleavened. But, but I'm not talking about yeast. I'm talking about malice and wickedness. Let's get that out. That's not a part of who we are anymore. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, let us keep the feast. And then a little later in that same letter, in chapter 10, Paul tells the Corinthians that the Red Sea, you know, passing through the Red Sea, was Israel's baptism. It doesn't say that in the Old Testament. Paul looks at it and goes, oh, yeah, see, that's what that is. That's their baptism. That's how Paul wants these new Christians living in the Roman Empire to think about their baptism. With our baptism, we are, li we are liberated from the dominion and the ways of Pharaoh or Caesar and brought into a new way of living. 
In Christ, we have become the liberated citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And our baptism, how do I want to put it? Our baptism washes away all previous allegiances. Baptism washes away our allegiance to race, ethnicity, national identity, all of those sorts of things. Baptism washes away our allegiance to politics. If somebody doesn't say amen, I'm going to just come out there and grab you. Baptism washes away all other allegiances to race and nationality and politics and replaces it with a pure allegiance to Christ. Christ is the one who brings us out of bondage and no one else. Christ is the one who saves us and no one else. Christ is our liberator and no one else. So it's Christ that brings us out of bondage and leads us to the promised land that flows with milk and honey. And now what we need to do in just a moment is keep the feast. Celebrate the feast and partake of the blood of the lamb. But maybe the first thing we need to do is, uh, is to pray a little bit. So why don't you bow your heads? And because uh, I may have rushed ahead of where you really are. You may say, well, you know, that's all good and fine, Pastor. I, I pretty much believe what you're saying. But right at the present moment, I still feel like a slave in Egypt. I feel like I'm in the house of bondage and my life is being made bitter. And so if that's you, I'm just asking people to bow their heads. If that's you, if you say, I, I feel like I'm in, I'm in the house of bondage and I feel like my life is being made bitter. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Mm-hmm. Amen. Yes. All right, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to do. We'll all do it together, but I'm especially speaking to those of you that have raised your hand. It says that, that Israel groaned unto God and God heard them. And that's what triggered everything. And I just want you to do this. I just want everybody, I just want you to do that. I want you to say, oh God. Just kind of, oh God. Oh God. Oh God. And God is the God who sees your situation and he hears that, oh God. He knows what you're going through, and he cares. And so he says, now I'm going to come. And how does God come to us? Through Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And so now, now, now maybe everybody can do this. Why don't you just lift up your hand, or maybe both hands, as if, as if you know, you're wanting someone to pluck you out of where you are. Maybe like a little child does, you know. They lift their hands because they want to be lifted up. And so you're lifting your hands, and Jesus is coming. Jesus is our liberator. Jesus is our savior. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one that says, let my people go to sin, Satan, and death. Jesus is the one that's going to lead you out. Jesus is the one that's going to bring you through the Red Sea and put you on a trail, on a path, on a journey into the land that flows with milk and honey. Amen and amen. So be it. Let's stand up. And we're going to come to this table. I'm going to tell you something about this table. This table is a whosoever will may come kind of table. It's it's the table where everybody is invited. We say it this way. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's the Lord's table. It's made ready for those who love him and those that want to love him more. So come. You who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often. You who have not been here long. You have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you. But I want to tell you something else about this table today. The ballot box divides us. 
The communion table unites us. Ballot politics <laughs> divides us. This unites us. We've been through a bitter, a bitter vitriolic election season, as is America's want. And so you'll hear, you'll hear people say things like, um, but we're all Americans. You'll say that, you know, trying to find some sort of unity and healing. I, I appreciate the sentiment, but that's not what we say in church. That's not what we say in church. First of all, we're not all Americans. <laughs> it's the global body of Christ. So that's kind of off the table. What we say is we all belong to Jesus. And Jesus is our, it, it isn't America that unites us. America is more likely to divide us, to be honest. It's Jesus who unites us. So yes, the ballot box divides us, but that's behind us. The communion table unites us. Because there's one body, there's one cup, there's one cup. We partake of one body, one cup, because in Christ we're one. Amen and amen. The body of Christ, broken for you. The blood of Christ, shed for you.